Last Sunday was our Legacy Sunday, and that's a Sunday where uh, throughout the year that we aim for at the end of the year to finish strong in our giving, to plan for our giving for the next uh, year. And and what that giving is for, it's for all the things beyond us. And so uh, we call that local missions, some of the things that we just talked about more, regional missions, which tends to be church planting or planting new campuses, and then uh, global missions, which would be stuff that we do all around the world. If you want to hear what they are all about, you can listen online, horizonfam.ca, uh, hear more in depth what it was about. But it's, uh, we were hoping to raise a lot of money between cash and people who would uh, plan in their giving and pledge to give. So I just wanted to kind of roll through. We've been doing this. This is, was our fourth year doing it. And uh, I think our first year we had $79,079.68 total cash and pledges. That was really good. We were pumped for that. Uh, I was hoping that we would get like uh, $50. That's how much faith I had the first year. And then the next year, uh, which is 2017, we had a total of $115,990.54. I, I was like, wow, we broke 100 Really, really cool. Then last year, we had $78,000 in cash and $69,000 in pledges, which came out to $138,000. But this year, we had in cash... Over $100,000 and 453.20. And pledges, yeah, pledges of $95,518.40 for a grand total of $195,971.60. So it's incredible. Uh, $95,000 in pledges, those are the ones that we will remind you about from time to time. But we didn't take your name so that we can harass you at your home or like uh, send somebody with a bat or anything like that. I don't know, we're, we're not that kind of church, but uh, really, in all seriousness, it's between you and God, and as we talk about things that we're doing beyond, it'll be your uh, key to remind you and uh, keep it before the Lord, and some of, my, some of you I know made that a step of faith, where you're saying, God, I'm, I'm doing this in response to you, and I'm pledging something that's going to be a sacrifice for me, and so we're going to ask that as we pray and we're going to pray in a moment, uh, that God will help you to do what you've asked or what he's asked you to do. Because God empowers you to do what he's asked you to do. It's not going to be all of a sudden you have to start striving and worrying about it. It's where we now begin to thank God that you're, it's you who gives me the power to get wealth. And it's you who gives me the ability to, to do things the way that I need to do them. But that's, that's really, really amazing. I think it is. I don't know about you, but I think it is. And the wonder, most wonderful thing about it for me is that it's all that money is going to just make such an incredible difference in people's lives. And we say it regularly, Matthew five sixteen: let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the goal of it all, is to, to help them in this earth, but also prepare people to encounter Jesus in eternity, to get to know him, so that we can populate uh, heaven with so many thousands upon thousands of people. Just incredible. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the great opportunity that it is to serve you, a great opportunity it is to be generous. Lord, thank you that you were generous with us, and in response, we're 
generous. Help us to be a generous, generous people. And as we look into this Christmas season, Lord, thank you that many, many people are going to come to know Jesus, that people are going to come to know you for the very first time, and people who, who have felt far from you are going to find their way back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to sit here today. Um, there's nothing in particular wrong more than normal with me, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, just put that. But... Um, I'll talk about what we're doing here in a moment, but just as we get into the Christmas season, I know it's December the 1st, uh, it's important to remind everybody that Christmas, although it is the most wonderful time of the year, for it's the best of times and it's the worst of times, honestly, for many, many people, because everything that's good in your life is highlighted, everything that's bad in your life is highlighted. So if your family's broken up and your things are going on and there's brokenness or you've lost somebody or whatever, it's all highlighted. And so it's important that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. And so in the context of everything we're saying and everything that we'll be talking about over the next number of weeks, just know that um, we're not insensitive and uh, none, no, no intention of celebration is to minimize anybody else's pain. I just need to say it up front that that we all have parts of our life that we wish were better. And in the midst of what goes on in our life that we say, Lord, help us. Help us to be sensitive to one another and help us to receive your grace and your goodness to walk through what might be difficult, okay? Be sensitive to the people around us. And also on Christmas Eve, there's multiple services. So um, we're not doing those because we, didn't, we just thought we could... Uh, keep people busy. We're doing it to help reach more people. We want to make room uh, for more people to encounter Jesus. So 4 o'clock, and I think it's 5.30, and then 7. Yeah, thank you. So four, three different opportunities on Christmas Eve, which will be super fun. Uh, the first one is full kids program. The ones after that, uh, there's the kids are welcome, but there won't be a full program for them. There will be stuff within the service. But um, be thinking about who you could invite. Somebody that... And the way that you really figure out who you should invite is by just uh, simply uh, praying about it and ask Jesus to help you in the middle of it all. Um, all right, here we go. If you got a Bible, or you have one here on your phone, open to Second Samuel chapter 9. And, well, you find your place where you find your Bible. Oh, Raul. Raul. He's Raul. You're like, who is Raul? He's been away for, what, two years now? Comes back every once in a while. He's been going to Hillsong College in uh, Australia. So good to have you back. We're going to give you a hand. Stand up. Make you embarrass you, bro. Yeah. I, I got to be honest, you look way cooler than when you left. I don't know, I don't know what. what what's, her, what's her name? Okay, we'll go back. Raul is like never coming back again. So, so one of the, uh, while you find your text, you know that the, uh, the table very often speaks of family. That's, I, I think like nothing else, the table speaks of what a family should be. But tragically, the table is more and more being replaced by, as my grandma used to call it, the idiot box, the TV, the television. Uh, I'm not here to suddenly advocate for an Amish way of living with no TV or power or anything like that, but I think it's really clear to see that 
tragically that the TV is, or is replacing the table, and the tab- but that the table, the dinner table is really the center of, of family life. And or the breakfast table to gather around the table where we can know one another and and talk to one another. It's where you gather. It's where you eat. It's where you spend time together. And they say in North America that we're spending less and less time around the dinner table. And again, it's related primarily to the TV or to the TV. And probably 40, 50 years ago, the people used to spend almost 90 minutes a day or 90 minutes around the dinner table. Uh, to just to eat and talk and do all the things. I don't know what you would, might think it is today, but it's said that it's around 15 to 17 minutes from 90 minutes years ago. Uh, everyone now just kind of sits down, and uh, if, they're, if they're sitting around the table, they're, uh, it's quick, but many have centered their eating around the TV, eating in front of the TV, and then if we were sitting at the table, the phones are out and we're done as quickly as possible and people are busy and running off to the next thing or doing homework or watching their show or everybody going to a different room to watch whatever uh, thing that they're streaming. But I think we're losing something with the elimination or the reduction of table time, of being at the table, precious moments, looking around at each other, talking. Something that we really worked hard when our kids uh, were small, and I, actually all while they were at home, there's getting to be less of them at home. We're working on dealing with that, and the Lord is helping us. <laughs> uh, we're making appointments with our kids to see them when they're available. Um, but seriously, um, you know, we're eating fewer meal- meals together, spending less time together, and it's also happening later in the evening. It used to be that the primary time, the, the best time or the major time for eating dinner together was five, around 5.30. Um, and now it's closer to 8 o'clock. It's something like 7.56 or 7.57 uh, p.m. that the average family gets a meal and wants to get it done. And there's multiple jobs and multiple homes and sometimes split homes and kids going here and there. Uh, and... Uh, But there are a whole bunch of positive things that really increase when you take and spend time at the dinner table. I don't know if you knew that. This is all going to make some sense in a moment, but we're just getting there. Kids, if when you have dinner together or you eat breakfast together, when you spend time at the table, somehow kids do better in school. Your kids do better in school. There's lower rates of obesity. It's kind of counterintuitive. The more time you spend at the table, the better, lower rates of obesity, and a whole bunch of other things that are good for you just come from being at the table. So really we can agree that the table speaks of about what the family should be. Just the heart of the home and the Christmas story is all about family all coming together. When I grew up in, uh, in the interior in a smaller town, it was not uncommon for uh, my mom uh, grew up super hospitable and modeled that for us is literally you never could guess who would be at your dinner table. Anybody else grew up in that kind of a family where just you would come home and you're like, oh, who are you? Uh, I don't really know you. Oh, my mom brought you home, met you somewhere, or you were a friend of a, of a fourth cousin, second, twice removed on the mother's side, next door neighbor, something like that. Um, but it's always ready to pull up a chair and 
put out a plate and make room for somebody at the table that was never too crowded. And so at the Christmas table, Christmas is like God inviting us and inviting all of us doing everything necessary to get us to the table, doing everything necessary that uh, we lost the place in the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned and lost access to God, close fellowship to God. And, and Christmas is all about where God is doing whatever it took to get us back to the table, to get us back to the place where we can encounter him, where we can know him, where we can walk with him. The Christmas story that actually began not in the New Testament, but began in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, where uh, God promised to crush the head of the, of the serpent or the enemy and to restore all that had been taken away and to reconcile us and bring us back into all that God created us for. So once more, we could find our way back to the table. So before we get reading in 2 Samuel chapter Second uh, Samuel chapter 9, I just want to do a quick little setup of three primary characters in our story. So the first, uh, and it starts by reading this we, in the first verse. So let's read and we'll get it all set up. One day David asked, is anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So we have just met three people. First one is Saul, who is the first king of Israel, uh, the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. He was the first anointed one. Uh, and then we have Jonathan, who is his son. And then David is Jonathan's best friend, son-in-law to Saul, and uh, the person who's going to be the next king. Saul did not like uh, this at all because it was Saul's plan that uh, his son Jonathan would be the king. Uh, but then God, through a whole bunch of circumstances, said, Jonathan, you're not going to be, uh, Saul, you're not going to be the king, which meant then Jonathan wouldn't be the king. In fact, I have a new king, and it's going to be uh, David. And God eventually told Saul, the kingdom that you thought was going to be yours, and it's going to be amazing. You're going to have it all. I'm going to take it from you because you refuse to do what I've asked, and you've done everything crazy. You, you're uh, corrupt in every way. You're not doing anything to serve the people, and so I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. And, and God selected someone else, and who he did was a little kid taking care of sheep by the name of David, whose dad didn't even think enough to invite him when the prophet came to say, hey, I'm looking for a new king. Bring all your boys. He forgot about David, and David was uh, overlooked. I think it's a good reminder for all of us that God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. So if you feel overlooked or you feel marginalized or excluded, it's a great reminder today that God sees you, God knows you, God loves you, God's for you, that anything is possible because God sees you. So David might have been overlooked, but it was made possible that God made a way because God sees the heart. So for all of us, this low-ranked David got anointed to be the king, and from that moment, God began to work in David's life in this incredible way and took him higher and higher and raised him to greater prominence in the kingdom, making great decisions. And there's one notable instance that we all know about uh, around the story. It's even commonly known in our culture, the, the, the story of David and Goliath. We know that uh, analogy, which flows out of an actual story where uh, David uh, confronted this great giant of a man named Goliath and defeats him and does it when nobody else would and he secures this incredible place in the kingdom and as God began to bless uh, David even more, Saul began to get more and more jealous. He was more and more insecure and he began to scheme about a way that he could actually kill David. 
And so even as David's life got more difficult, God began to use him in an even more incredible way. And in fact, in one uh, time, Saul devised a way that he could kill David by sending him to fight an army that was incredibly huge, and there was no way that he could win. But somehow he wins. And in fact, he doesn't only win. And because he wins, David, this is ancient times, David was given the daughter of Saul as his wife. And so he suddenly went from being an outsider, a guy that was kind of there, to being an insider, being the son-in-law of Saul. So now it kind of, kind of looked down on to kill your son-in-law. So David, he's kind of stuck with David trying to figure out how to, to get rid of him. And I think David's social media marriage status forever remained. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. But you're asking, where are the wise men, Craig? Where are the shepherds? This is Christmas. What's happening? We'll get there. It's going to be good. Okay? It's not one of the Hallmark Christmas that I get subjected to sometimes at my home. Oh, watch this movie. It seems exactly the same as the last three Hallmark movies. Yeah, if you... It's true. Just different people. It's the same story. Oh, you're on a farm, and, and you're, you came from far away, and suddenly you're here, and then I met you, and I thought my life was over, and then I met you, and then Christmas, and then a mistletoe, and my life was forever changed. You know it's true. Can I get an Amen. This is about an actual Christmas because Christmas, Hallmark Christmas is not real. Or prayer for you after the service. But this story, it's, see, Christmas is actually addresses what's called the human condition. And this story does too. And the problems that plague all of us deep down. Because Hallmark Christmas is not actually real. But all right, so now you're kind of familiar with Saul. You understand who David is. Now there's Jonathan who brings a whole complexity to this entire story. Uh, because he and David were best friends. Now that's awkward. I'm supposed to be the king. Uh, the, this guy has now been called to be the king, David. and now we're, But we're best friends. And Saul wanted uh, Jonathan to be the king, and God made it clear that David's going to be the king, and Jonathan, he sides with David. Instead of fighting David, he says, it's all right. If you're going to be king, I'll, I'll, be your, I'll be your buddy. We're friends, and I'll help you. But Saul was like, no, you can't do that. But Jonathan says, no, God's hand is on your life, and, and God's going to take care of me. I want what God wants for me. I don't want more than that or less than that. I just want what God wants for me. And so Saul gets mad at Jonathan for defending David. And so Saul then is so angry, he tries to kill Jonathan so he can become the king. Jonathan, I'm going to kill you because I'm so mad at you that you're supposed to be the king, so I'm going to kill you so you can be the king. But, Dad, if you kill me, then I'm not really the king. Like, that's kind of a problem in your plan. Like, sometimes when you're going crazy and sin makes you do stupid things, that doesn't make sense at all. So what's he going to do? 
Jonathan says, David, regardless of what happens, promise me that when the time comes that you'll take care of my family. And David kind of says to them, Jonathan, we're going to be fine. Like, you're not going to die. I'm going to be king. It's going to be amazing. We're going to be together. No, it's going to be great. And he says, he insists, no, will you take care of my family? Will you be kind to my family? Promise me. And so David promises him and says, I'll take care of your family. I'll watch over your family. Whatever happens, I will watch your, your family. It'll be good. And so on they go. And from that moment, Jonathan had to leave because he was called. And he had to go. And David had to go. And he actually began a 10-year journey of fighting and running, not fighting, running for his life. And, and for the next decade nearly, Saul was chasing him. And for a lot of the time, David ended up living in caves in dark places. And uh, David also wrote a lot of the Psalms, which are some of the most popular uh, parts of the Bible. And it's, a good, it's actually a good lesson that sometimes in a cave, God can bring something really good out of it. And in your darkest place, if we allow God to shape it, he can do something that's incredible if we just allow him into the whole mess of the story. So anyway, uh, so we don't know about that, all that. And Jonathan, did they ever see each other? And again, eventually, Jonathan dies. And on the same day, Saul dies. And that brings us to where David woke up one day and said, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? thinking of the promise he made, anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sakes. He calls a man named Ziba, uh, not a popular name today, Ziba. Are you Ziba? The king asked. That is a strange name. No, he didn't say that. He said, yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. Then the king asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them. Ziba replied, yeah, Actually, one of Jonathan's sons still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked, in Lodabar. Somebody say, Lodabar. That's Ziba told him. At, that moment, at the home of Machir, son of Amil, so David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. Try and say that. Mephibosheth. Yeah, I knew you could. So here's our fourth character, Mephibosheth. He's Jonathan's son, who David never knew. Um, David didn't get the status update that Jonathan had a new son. He didn't know. Uh, while he was on the run, it seems like Mephibosheth was born. And David did not even know that he, that he existed. And he was running. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground. This is Mephibosheth. In deep respect, David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I'm your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of your, my promise to your father, Jonathan. And I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat with me at the king's table. So Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you would show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. He also had a young son named Amika. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. What a great reversal of fortune for Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet from that moment forward, what did he do? He lived in Jerusalem, and he ate regularly at the king's table. Now, so far, you're like, it's still not a Christmas story. But let's keep going. 
I think like this story is exactly what we need to understand if we're going to go into Christmas with the right, right perspective, the right frame of mind. Because you and I are Mephibosheth. We're Mephibosheth. Thankfully, you don't have that actual name, but we're Mephibosheth. So here we go. From number one, you can write down, there's going to be like five things, and then it's going to pull it all back together. Number one, from, from, for Mephibosheth, life hadn't gone according to plan. And if we're to understand Christmas and the power of the story of Jesus coming to the world, it's because like Mephibosheth, our lives haven't gone according to plan. Have they? Maybe you were young and you chatted about what it was going to be like to be 20 and 30 and 40 years old. You know, when you're like 17, you're like, I'm going to one day, I'm going to be really old, like 40. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be a politician or I'm going to be a space uh, astronaut or I'm going to be a police officer. And then you look at your life right now and you're like, what happened? Why did I give up on my dreams? Or maybe you had this image of what marriage was going to look like and, and divorce wasn't in the picture that you painted or we painted, was it? Or the difficulty of losing a parent that maybe you weren't on speaking terms with and you never got to reconcile before they passed away. Or maybe you were a young person and you got mixed up with the wrong crowd and got involved in some criminal activity and got down just a few bad choices and you found yourself in an incredibly difficult, broken place and you had no idea how you ever got there. You never planned it. Life doesn't always go according to plan. I think if we asked around the room, every one of us would have things where like, didn't see that coming. Someone said, I think it was Mike Tyson who said, it's good to have a plan, but what do you do when life punches you in the face? How do you adapt when life savagely punches you in the jaw? See, Mephibosheth, his life didn't go according to plan. He was five years old when his father died, and his grandfather died on the same day. All of a sudden, life was really difficult. Now, this is where it gets even more interesting, because his grandfather was King Saul, as we already know. So imagine how different life became overnight. He went from being one of second in line to the throne, Saul, Jonathan, and then... Mephibosheth, because his grandfather was king. Imagine how different life got overnight. He's a young prince, second in line, and suddenly there's a whole new king and a whole new dynasty in town by David. Anyhow, Mephibosheth wakes up somewhere in the morning in his fifth year of his life in palace and in his room, and he could tell something wasn't right, and all through the house is being yelled, the king is dead, the king is dead. Jonathan is dead, and David is the new king. The king is dead. Everything was about to change for this man. New home. Who knew where it would be? No dad. We don't even know. His mom's not even mentioned. doesn't seem that she's in the picture. She's never mentioned. We don't know whether she's alive or not, but life just didn't go according to plan. Second reason why we're like Mephibosheth, and we need to own up to that, this Christmas is to, to receive the power of this message, is that people in his life that he trusted let him down. All through the room, we've all experienced that. People in your life that you look to said that they be there for you, weren't there, said they'd be faithful to you, backed out and betrayed you. 
They said, till death do us part. What they meant was, till death do us part, or I find somebody that's hotter and I can go after him or her. Or I don't feel like honoring the covenant that I made, or it was just too difficult. We looked at people. We trusted them. We trusted our parents would stay. We trusted that this person in our life that we respected wouldn't molest us. We trusted people who've let us down. Mephibosheth didn't have a dad anymore. What did he have? He had a nanny. He had a nurse. That's all that, who, the only one who's other mentioned. And the Bible describes her, and in Second Samuel chapter 4, he's about five years old. It talks about it. Uh, he was crippled the day his dad died. Because how did it happen? He was five years old when a report came in, like we've already said. And, and the, when the child's nurse heard the news, it talks that she swoops him up in her arm and she runs. And as she runs, she drops him or trips or something, and he becomes crippled. And there was panic all through the house because the king had died and the next king, the, the, the prince had died. And, and the fear that we're going to be rounded up and killed because we're associated with and that, this little boy, Mephibosheth, is associated. He's next in line, so they'll be looking to kill him. And not only that, I work for him, so my life is also in danger. So we, she could have just tripped, but maybe at first she was like, oh, I'm going to take care of him. It's my job. But then perhaps... Maybe she started to think, he's slowing me down a bit. Or B, I, I don't have a job anymore. Or C, my connection to this child could actually hurt me and cost me my life. So maybe she didn't just stumble him. Maybe she did more than drop him. Maybe she tried to get rid of him. We don't know. But it would seem like, I don't know if you've ever been carrying a child, if you're going to trip and fall that you, you are the one who ends up on the bottom, not the baby, not the child, not the five-year-old. So I don't know, well, there's no, we don't have any way to know, but we only know that she not only let him fall, but the fall was bad enough that he either broke his back uh, and was crippled or he broke both his uh, legs so badly and was misshapen that he could never walk again. But all I know is that she was in, she was in charge and, and he fell. And that's on her because she was taking care of him. But on there's the other side of the coin. We've all trusted people who've let us down, but we've all let people down who trusted us. People who, and that's on me. There's things that I have done that have let people down. There's things that I have done that have hurt people deeply. There's ways I've lived that I shouldn't have that hurt the name of Jesus and hurt the people around me and we've all fallen and we've all let other people fall why we've all fallen in a deeper way which Romans 3 and 23 one of the books of the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and because we've fallen that way it explains why we've been hurt and why we hurt other people because we all have fallen now, here's where it gets real serious. The third reason we're like Mephibosheth is because he was in danger and he had nowhere to run, nowhere to go. Years had gone by. He's probably in his 20s, maybe even his oldest 30s because he had a, a son himself. Uh, and he had been living in low Debar. Everybody say, low Debar. David knew nothing about him. David forgot about his promise. He's been expanding his, and his empire, doing all these things and fighting battles and all the things. And some re some, one day, for some reason, he says, hey, is there anybody left from Jonathan's family? 
I don't know anybody from Saul's family. So he looks, it looks, uh, they look it up. Is there anyone related? Now, everybody assumes, guaranteed in that time, that we're having a Game of Thrones moment right now. That we are having a moment where... Uh, Lord of the Rings, I don't want a blood relative left in any way because if there's a blood relative left of Saul, we got to kill him now because I don't want him to come and try and take over in 20 years from now or 30 years from now. We're going to take him out. And so the expectation was if he was looking for somebody that was related to Saul, it was looking so he could execute them. And in fact, when Mephibosheth came into the story, he was probably expecting that, that he had been rounded up in Lodabar a place that means no pasture, a place of barrenness. That's where he was. He had been in the, in the palace, and now he was in the place of Lodabar, a place of barrenness, a place of no pasture. And the call comes. The king is calling you. He's fully expecting that I'm about to be executed. And that's why the first thing that David speaks to his, him is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And what have, where have we heard that before in the Christmas story? Where have we heard that? Here's David, a man from Bethlehem, saying, don't be afraid. And in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, in, at Bethlehem, it says, suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared among them, the shepherds, and the radiance of the glory of the Lord surrounded them. They, like Mephibosheth, they were terrified. But the angel reassured them and said, don't be afraid. Let's say that. Don't be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy for all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the, the Christ the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Isn't it amazing that the story we're looking at today echoes or foreshadows the greatest story ever, that the person, this person who is in great danger, who had nowhere to run, finds mercy at the hand of a good king. Why are we like Mephibosheth? Because there was a good king, even though we had nowhere to run, wanted to show him kindness. We too are in danger. We're in danger because we're all sinners and we're all far and separated from God. We've all fallen and we have no way to move forward in our life. We no, have no way to fix or change our life. And we, we, we are not a body. We have a body. And one day our soul will stand before God and we will face a judgment when we all die. We're in danger because we're all sinners. We've fallen and because we're moving ever closer to the day when we will all die. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and the judgment, according to Jesus, is between heaven and hell. That's according to Jesus. Those are the two options. Now, why should we listen to Jesus? There's so many prophets, so many gurus, so many different ways of thinking why should we listen to Jesus? Well, this is kind of the way, kind of shorthand for me. Uh, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection, then actually did it. Uh, and so that's why I'm listening to him. I'm listening to what Jesus has to say because of the resurrection. So when we stand before Jesus, when we stand before God to be judged for the deeds of the body, it's heaven and hell. And that's, what's the difference between the two? Well, it's not, did you do more good than bad? There's not a scale. It's have you sinned or have you not sinned? Has your sin been dealt with or not? We've all fallen short of the glory of God and the, pe the penalty or the wages of sin is death. So 
If we die physically and we are dead spiritually, then we are separated perpetually. We remain lost. And that's what the Bible teaches is hell. It's a Christless eternity. And that's not what God wants for you or for me or for anyone. He's a good king who has sought you out to show you his kindness. No ability in danger, nowhere to go, nowhere to run. That's Christmas. Christmas is God intruding, see we're getting there, into the world to show kindness. His coming to the world in human likeness so that we would not experience danger, so we could be free from the power of death and hell, so, we could, so he could show kindness to us. N.T. Wright, who's a, an author, a Christian author, writes this. He said, Christmas is not a reminder that the world is really a, quite a nice old place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad old place where wickedness flourishes, where children are murdered, where civilized countries make a lot of money selling weapons to uncivilized ones so they can blow each other apart. Christmas is God lighting a candle. And you don't light a candle in a room that's already full of sunlight. You light a candle in a room that's so murky that the candle when lit reveals just how bad things really are that's why the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Christmas is a rescue mission. Christmas is radical and messy. It's God's way of saving us from a life that's lost and empty, full of nothing. The kindness of God, that's Christmas, who would come to show us kindness when we had no way of getting beyond where we are, expecting at any moment to be executed, expecting to be lost forever in Lodabar, the place of no pasture, the place of barrenness. But the king says, don't be afraid. I want to show you kindness because I made a promise to your dad. Mephibosheth, not because you deserve it, but because my covenant with your uh, dad. You're going to be treated as a son, and that brings us to the final point. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Because here it is, like Mephibosheth, he was given a seat at the royal table. David says, no, you're not going to be executed. I have come to bless you. I've come to adopt you. I've come to take you from being an outsider to being an insider. I've come to take you from a place of barrenness to bring you to a place of blessing. I've come to make your life next level. I've come to bring you hope. I've come to bring you to a place that you never thought you could attain. I've come to make your life that's something that's going to be significant and change forevermore. I'm inviting you and calling you up into a new seat at the royal table. For the rest of your life, Mephibosheth, I want you to live in Jerusalem. If you're willing, I'll make room for you at the table. There's a spot for you at the table. I'm making room for you here at the palace. And from here on, I decree that this is Mephibosheth's seat. Let's put his name on it. Every time we sit down for food, I will sit here. I will, my sons and my daughter will sit here. And Mephibosheth will, Mephibosheth will sit here and he will find his way up. And he somehow manages to get to the table. The chair is pushed in and the napkin's placed on his lap. And he looks around and he says, 
I have a place where I belong. I have people who want me here at the table. There's a good king smiling at me. There's a king who is asking for me. He's asking how my day is, who loves, my, who loves me, who loved my dad. And I'm sitting here because of what, hap- that, of what he did. And he's showing his love and kindness to me. He didn't have to. And though I lived in Lodabar, a place of barrenness and no way forward, I am now at a place that no longer a place of no pasture, but I've been seated down next to the king and a place has been made for me where they didn't deserve or even need to make a place for me. And now I'm here in Jerusalem. Instead of being in barrenness, I'm in Jerusalem at the king's table, seated down. I have a place at the table. I have a place in the family. There's provision for my life. And uh, uh, look what's happening. The opportunity to sit at the table and laugh and eat and tell jokes and, and after the food is all done, to sit back and love and be loved in family. There's a place at the table. And just the best parts of all happening around the table, good food, relationships, God wanting you to have a place. He's making room. He's made room. He's making room for you at the table. And Christmas shows the extreme lengths that he'll go to have you at the table, to have your friends at the table, to have your family at the table. And what did it take? Look at the screen. You see, it took God's own son being willing to come and be born in a stable. That's Christmas. Jesus being born in a barn. That's Christmas. Jesus being born in the midst of filth. That's Christmas. Jesus being born in a place where there was no space, where there was no room for him, but the one for whom there was no room came to make room for everyone. God's son being born into a world surrounded by animals, but living a life where he was doubted and ridiculed and mocked and rejected and died, surrounded by criminals on the cross, and on the third day rose from the dead, sending his spirit out into the world to seek you out. To call you from low to bar, to call me from low to bar, from a place of barrenness and waste, and say there's a place at the table, inviting you into the city, inviting you not because he's mad at you, not because he's come to get you, but because he's come to reconcile us and find a place at the table. He wants to prepare, prosper you, has good plans for you, wants to be your father, wants to be you to be his son or his daughter, but I don't deserve it. That's the point. None of us do. It was for Jesus' sake, not because we were so good. David blessed Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. God wants to bless you for Jesus' sake. And he wants to adopt you into his family for Jesus' sake. And he wants you to feast at his royal table, to strike up the music, to serve the food, to call the band, to celebrate because you have a place at the table. Imagine Mephibosheth sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I felt like an outcast my whole life because of my brokenness, my lame legs. I've been an enemy of the state since I was five years old. My life shattered in front of my and dissolved into thin air, but now I'm sitting here next to the Prince Absalom, the vainest guy ever. Look at him. He thinks he's amazing. I'm not getting a selfie with him no matter what he says. And not only that, here's David at the head of the table 
telling that story again of Goliath and how he defeated Goliath. Isn't it incredible? Oh my gosh. And all the while his condition was hidden by his position at the table. What I'm saying is that your history doesn't have to determine your destiny. Somebody needs to hear that this could be your last day in Lodabar, the place of barrenness, the place of no pasture, the place of no life. God wants you to know that he's making room at the table for you, for each one of us, no matter how we feel like we're outside, because of Jesus, we have a seat at the table with his people, with his sons and his daughters, with purpose and hope and passion and light and the love of God looking into each of us. Psalm 68, 6, that God sets his, says that God sets the solitary or the lonely one into family, the family of God. How do you get there? There's two ways, just two simple things. Be humble and sit down. See, be humble and sit down. You've got to be humble. What does it mean? You've got to quit pretending like we've got it all together. Religion tells us if you just do enough good things that you'll, you'll, you'll be good enough and God will accept you. Even, even when we've made Jesus the leader of our life and we've surrendered our life to Jesus, we can sometimes slip into a pattern that says, if I'm good enough, then I have a place at the table. Otherwise, I will sit out here like I'm an outsider and hope I get a few scraps from the table when because of Jesus... Because of Jesus, the Bible says I can come boldly before the throne of grace or I can come up to the table because it was never about me. It's always been about Jesus and he's made a way and he can, I can come near and I can draw near and he can take the brokenness of my life and the place where I can't walk, the place where I can't move forward, the place where I'm stuck, the place where I wish things wouldn't have, the place and all of those things and he can make a place. He's made a place. He's making room for me at the table and everything can begin to change when I get up to the table, but I have to humble myself. Because do you know how many people are going to be in heaven by their own works? Zero. Only people in heaven are going to be there because of Jesus' sake, because they've surrendered their life to Jesus. If you insist on going your own way, earning your own way, having a big long list of things that you must do to get there, then you won't. The only way we get to heaven is trusting Jesus and being humble and saying, God, I need you. Kind of like Mephibosheth said. He said, I'm a dead dog and I'm your servant. It's not a word kind of a way we talk nowadays, but it kind of underlines how he just thought, man, I don't deserve this in any way, shape, or form. Who am I that you should so, show such kindness to me? Be humble and sit down. You've got to be willing to take a seat. What does that mean? You have to accept the invitation. He was called... I saw you in Lodabar. I heard you were there. I called you here. I wanted to show kindness to you. Come up. There's a seat for you at the table. Mephibosheth at that point had to decide whether he was going to respond or not. He would say yes or he would say no. And take a seat. Sit down. Accept what's been given to you. And Ephesians 2 and 1 puts it this way. This is the Christmas story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins. That sucks. But a little further on, see, the gospel isn't about bad people being made good. It's about dead people being made alive. But God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. And look at the beautiful imagery. And seated us with him 
in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. When we choose to sit down in Christ and take the promises and receive them and appropriate, accept his invitation to the royal table, we get seated in heavenly places. And when we're at the table, we're under the covering and the protection of the king. Every resource that we need, everything that we need, everything that we don't know how to get through, the king is at the table. Every situation that seems impossible for us, the king is at the, we're at the king's table. When we don't know how to break through in that area, the king is at the table. When there's no resource, when I feel like I can't move ahead, I'm at the king's table. Everything that I need is at the king's table. And I can't let anything that of my own thing keep me from it. I can't let my insecurity keep me from the king's table. I can't let my failure keep me from the king's table. I can't let my sin keep me from the table because at the table he's made room for me and all the provision for my life and the family that I need and the life that I need and the love that I need and the provision that I need and the hope that I need and the purpose that I need and the courage that I need and the love that I need. Everything is all there and he wants you to live with hope and peace and purpose. There's a place prepared for you in heaven when you respond to his invitation. The flip side of that is you need to respond. But when you're at the table, you also get to be part of the group that goes to Lodabar, also known as Surrey and Langley, Burnaby and Coquitlo, New West, Richmond, wherever people are that feel that they're in a place of barrenness and brokenness and know no way forward. Once you're in the family, you have the right as sons and daughters to extend the invitation to others. And that's what, how many of you know we can invite our friends over to the family table literally for dinner as well as the table that's right here because God is always making room for more. His table is without limit. He's always making room for more. There's always another spot at the table. Always another spot. He's making room. We want the whole world to know how great it is to experience the great grace of our God. Like Mephibosheth and Lodabar and coming and hearing the call. Hey, David wants to see you. The king wants to see you. What a great invitation. And as we look and as we start leaning into Christmas, have we accepted God's gracious invitation, number one? Have you chosen to be humble and sit down? Today, this is your opportunity to do that. And God's Spirit's working, I think, in many hearts. We're going to pray in a moment. We're going to pray for that, and we're also going to pray for... I know that there's people in your lives that are in Lodabar that you're saying, I don't know how we could ever see them out of Lodabar and seated at the king's table. Here's the only part. Well, there's, we, we say that invest, intercede, intercede, invest, and invite. Intercede for people. Continue to invest in their life and just love them. And invite them to church. 24th is coming up. Your friends need what you have. They need a seat at the table to know that what God has for them, to know how God needs them, to know how they need God, how God could use them to help change someone else's life. But first, have you accepted God's gracious invitation? Just close your eyes for a moment and we're going to pray. And when I'm done, the band's going to sing. But 
course, we're going to pray. Here's how it's going to work. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand up, and I'm not going to ask you to come down to the front. But first, I'm going to ask you to pray out loud with me, believing in your heart, expressing it with your lips, because the Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Simple as that. Believe in my heart, confess with my mouth that Jesus is raised from the dead, Lord, and raised from the dead, I can be saved and I can have a seat at the table and the King can change the future of my life. Simple as that. I'm going to pray a prayer, a little piece at a time. I'm going to ask you to pray out loud with me. I'm going to ask the whole church to pray as our way of saying we welcome you into the family with arms open wide, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through, no matter what your experience has been can be your day. He knows your name. Mephibosheth or whatever it might be. He knows where you are in Lodabar in a place of barrenness and, and no way forward. Don't miss this moment. Just invite everybody to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Everybody all together, come on family. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus. I repent. I surrender my life to you. I want a place at the table. I believe that you're the Savior of the world, Jesus. Come into my life. You have my yes. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, just if you prayed that prayer for the first time, can you just throw your hand up around the room, please? If you prayed that prayer for the first time, just surrender your life to Jesus. Amen. All right. Okay. Second part, we're going to pray then. Just for a moment, just ask Jesus, who is my Mephibosheth in my life that I need to give the invitation to this Christmas season as we enter into it. Just ask Jesus, Lord, who? Who do you want me to invite that they too could hear what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to have the life-transforming encounter with heaven? When you have... If you have a name, just throw your hand up with every head bowed and every eye closed. Someone that you're going to say, Lord, I'm going to prayerfully invite them. Come on, family. I want you to be prayerfully asking Jesus over these next two, three weeks. Yeah. So, Father, for the names that are represented by the hands that are up, Lord, and the ones that you're that were percolating around inside of us, Lord, we ask that you would call them like Mephibosheth, that you call them from far away, from a place where they feel like maybe there's no way forward, Lord, but you see them in their place, and they, they have a new place, and you're making room for them at the table. We thank you for who they are. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen.